the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Rob Black and your money. Your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finance, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800-516-1220. So call in. We'll chat and uh, have some fun. You're listening to the best of Rob Black and your money on the Bay Area's business leader, 1220 KDOW. Welcome in, Rob Black and your money. Talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. If you've listened to my show, if you've spent any time with me, you know that I'm geared towards getting you to retirement. I'm geared to stopping or helping you stop, make mistakes, tied towards um, scenarios like, oh, good golly, uh, bad financial people. Every industry has some bad. Sometimes they're bad nurses. Literally, nurses of mercy. Welcome back in. Rob Black and your money. Talking all things financial. I kind of have a crazy voice going today, so let's go with that. Anything you want to talk about, we can talk about money investing in more. Um... Let's start with yesterday and market highs. I did not have a party yesterday. I did not jump up and down and woot. I'm not getting like, oh man, I wish a big correction would come. Eh. One of the reasons you succeed on Wall Street is because you can maintain calm. Yesterday we had soft retail sales data for April. And it took some of the the shine off. Um, Some profit-taking here, there. But ultimately, we have a market that is dealing with fresh all-time highs on the Dow and on the S&P 500. And it's got people thinking, like, uh, when's when's this tech rally going to end? What's it mean for me? When I say tech rally, that's the word that someone used in the elevator this morning. I've got a security guard at the station, and he's like, so if Google goes you know, down, what's that going to mean for the city of San Francisco? I'm like, not much, because Google's not going down. Tech companies have so much cash that they could kind of alleviate some of the fears in that sector. And notice that we didn't say the NASDAQ hit an all-time high. We said the Dow and the S&P 500. So that's worthy of note, um, in my opinion. So back to the current market conditions. Um, retail sales report 
created concerns that the economy's not poised to ramp as strongly in the second quarter as a lot of economists are hoping for. That's kind of good news and bad news. The faster the economy ramps, that sounds like a good thing, right? But that tends to create inflation. It can create wage inflation, which is good for you, but bad for your boss. Wage inflation could create, you know what? I'm going to Hawaii inflation. You have a little bit more money, you spend it. More people go into Hawaii, and suddenly the flights to Hawaii get a little bit more expensive. So we're keeping an eye on inflation for all the lack of economic growth, as tame as it is, inflation just isn't that bad. With that said, flights are a lot more expensive now than they were five years ago. But that's kind of for a different reason. That's because the airlines have kind of figured out we can't lose money forever. And we need to make some money. And they figured out how to do it. So the PPI report out of the United States produced some surprise headlines. Up six-tenths of a percent producer price index after half of 1% increase in March. That means businesses are having costs hit them. And at some point in time, businesses pass that cost on to you. There's a couple famous examples on why we care about inflation. The producer price index plays with the consumer price index, PPI, CPI. Chipotle recently raised their price of meat dishes. And they kept the chicken, I think, the same. But people are all freaked out, like, oh, my steak costs more than my chicken now. Well, that's because that's what's happened to the commodity of animals. That's what droughts will do. So we've thinned our herd. The other example of, you know, inflation, certainly, in my opinion, is the same one. You know, I told you I recently went to a restaurant and saw a pretty good steak, not a great steak, for 44 bucks. And then you factor in 15% tip, and that's a $50 piece of protein. Too much. Too much. So I will cut down my consumption, and maybe an extra cow will live because I'm not eating a whole cow a year now. And suddenly a farmer has extra cow, so maybe he'll decrease prices in the future. That's kind of supply and demand simplified. Um, John Deere, they make tractors which is every six-year-old boy's fantasy to drive one. Um, better, than expected, um, better than expected earnings, but disappointing guidance. So a company called Fossil, same exact thing. Macy's, they beat the expectations by a penny. They reaffirmed their 2014 guidance. They boosted their dividend 25%. They announced an increase to its share buyback. That supports, you know, uh, that supports the stock for sure. Macy's is kind of like the winner of the whole Sears, JCPenney's, Macy's, Bloomingdale's kind of world. Um, I still don't even like going, like, I go into a Macy's and I'm like, you know, there's like 500 departments on the floor, like men's underwear, men's shirts, men's shoes, women's underwear, women's shoes, women's shirts, perfume, watches. I'm like, hello, can I get some help? Hello, is anyone here? They don't seem to be terribly well-staffed. Cisco, they're going to report numbers today after the market close. That's an interesting company because, on one hand, I like Cisco. 
networking equipment. And we're going to get networking equipment in our cars. We're going to get networking equipment in our refrigerators. We're going to get networking equipment in our routers and switches and computers. On the other hand, Cisco feels so very 1998. It's a company that I think would benefit from a leadership change. And I know you're saying you're pretty arrogant calling for the head of John Chambers. Yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, we've seen leaders like Dell, Michael Dell, step down for a while, only to come back. Howard Schultz at Starbucks stepped down for a while, only to come back. Um, when I take a look at the last five years of Cisco, it's gone from basically $18 to $23, which isn't bad. But it's gone higher, it's gone lower, it's gone higher, it's gone lower. And certainly stock buybacks and low valuation are helping the stock at this point in time. Dividend yield of about 3.3%, very much similar to, you have to call it old tech. Intel, Microsoft, Cisco, having this, you know, we still sell a lot of stuff. You know, we still are worth 85 bus, $100 billion plus. Um, price to sales low. The expectations on Cisco are so low at this point in time. It's got a PE that is so low, cheaper than the stock market. And this used to be a tech growth sexy company. I kind of compare Cisco to Apple on a level. Apple's got better product, though. At this point in time, less competition. No, no, no. Apple's got less competition at this point in time. Anyhow, you can find me online, robblack.com. That's robblack.com. Let's take a break. Be right back. Welcome back in. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black. Talk all things financial. Prices on homes continue to rise this year, albeit at a slower pace than last year. The median existing single-family home, it's $191,600 in the United States. That's up 8.6% from last year. I know you're saying 191000 I can't... Buy a shack in the Bay Area for that, right? I'm talking about all the United States. Cash is king here. All cash sales reached a new all-time high in the first quarter. 43% of all residential property sales in the first quarter were cash-only purchases, up from 19% in the first quarter of 2013. That's crazy, because that's telling you that the people who are buying the houses are not the first-time homeowners. S&P 500 is down 5 today, the Dow is down 59, the NASDAQ is down 14. Joining me now, CFP, 
Chad Burton, NewFocusFinancial.com, host of New Focus on Wealth here from 1 to 2, Monday through Fridays on KDOW 1220. Email. Emails, popular way to ask questions that are on your mind. Uh, drop me an email or chat an email. Chad at NewFocusFinancial.com to get your email read on this segment. Monica, it's nice to get an email from a female. Is three years safe money enough? If three years of uh, three years of down market, you empty three years of cash, can you need another one to two years of cash to wait while recovering? Yeah, so Monica's obviously listened or been to our events where I always preach you got to have three years worth of portfolio draws in cash when you get to retirement because where I came up with that is that looking at the market when I got in the business you know over 20 years ago notice that the there's only been a couple of times when I first got in business once where the market was negative for three years in a row so you realize that cash is king during those periods of time you got to get through those periods right but the peak to the trough back to the peak tends to take five to seven years okay so that's a good question yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So what you have to do is say, okay, at the end of the three years, if the market's fallen three years in a row, how do you get through the rest of the period of time? Well, you have to have enough dividend yield and interest yield on your portfolio to feed your cash while you're going through that peak to, to trough to to the top. So you you have to do things in retirement like bonds bond, or bond alternatives so you have enough yield in your portfolio. If you Invest correctly, your portfolio is yielding enough so that your cash would actually last five years in a scenario like that. At the same time, you need to invest in some of the alternative products out there. There's things like structured note CDs where you can get a portion of the upside of the market without the downside risk. So it's a kind of an in-between stocks and bonds um, so that you know within you know five to six years that you've got another year's worth of income coming due to get you through a, a period of like you know, 2007 to about end of 2012 where it was peak to trough back to peak. So you really have to hedge five to seven years worth of income, and the three years of expenses is just the start to doing that. Okay. But it's a good question in, in large part because um, I guess you know there's nothing really certain, and she's trying to get a little bit more worst-case scenario, which I like the way she's thinking. Yeah, because people want to retire and be able to sleep, knowing that they have a plan in place to get through. 70% of the time, we're just dealing with market highs in good periods. 30% of the time, real scary in retirement. Let's go to another email question. You can email Chad at newfocusfinancial.com. That's Chad at newfocusfinancial.com. What's the best way to manage your home? Should I pay off my mortgage or keep? Should sell it my home when? Okay, so pay off the mortgage or keep the mortgage. Yeah. And sell the home when? Pull out your real estate crystal ball. And don't forget to turn on the, um, the earthquake indicator. Oh, the earthquake indicator. Okay, hold on a second. All right, it's on. So it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I don't know when, but it's coming. Um, a safe answer. Yeah, I mean, here's here's the deal. You have to look at it a couple of different ways. First of all, carrying a mortgage makes a lot of sense to maximize every single dollar. But you also have to deal with how some people feel about money. And sometimes it's really important to people to have their home paid off. And it's not about maximizing every dollar. It's the mental aspect that this is what I want. This is what I desire. Do I have enough tools to do that? And in this case, the tool is money, right? So some people, that's really, really important. At the same time, too, let's say you talk to somebody and they're you know, 15 years into their 30-year mortgage, and they're not paying much interest anymore, so that mortgage isn't resulting in a lot of income tax deductions. And that same person has a lot of cash on the sidelines or they're overweight in bonds. So what they have to say is, okay, 
you know, if I pay off this mortgage, which I'm not getting much of a tax deduction for anymore, will I still be able to itemize deductions? If the answer is yes, then sometimes that's a good use of your excess cash or your excess waiting to bonds to pay that off. Um, so in terms of having to sell the house, you, you need to know well in advance whether or not you're going to have to sell your house to have a successful retirement 10 years in advance because you don't want to be putting your house up for sale in 2009 because you've run out of your other liquid assets. You want to be putting your house up for sale during a seller's market. And the real estate cycle is 7 to 10 years. So if you miss out on one cycle, you'll be able to hit the next. You need to have enough money to get through the cycles. It's interesting because when you own real estate, you do have some equity over time. It turns out that way more often than not. Um, I've always, always in the back of my head since I was a little boy, known that I could always sell a home and like move to Guatemala or I could move to some third world country and sell oranges on the beach. Mm-hmm. Probably not the best idea to plan on selling oranges on the beach. No, that sounds kind of boring. Yeah. So. <laughs> How about if I do it with a beautiful woman? There you go. Okay. okay. Now, now it was a little bit better. better retirement visual. Yeah, yeah, a little bit better. So anyway, that's CFP Chad Burton. You can find him at newfocusfinancial.com. It's newfocusfinancial.com. You can email him, Chad, C-H-A-D, at newfocusfinancial.com. And I'm Rob Black. You can find me at robblack.com. So let's talk about some of the trends in housing. And uh, I'm a big trend guy. I don't know if you grasp that. Um, you know, home prices are going through the roof on a median level. That's a big trend. The housing price bubble is pronounced, especially in California, the higher end of the market. And to give you some color on that, you know, all you need to do is start looking at the affordability. Only 14% of the homes in San Francisco are affordable. So otherwise, you have to come in with some sort of, like, big cash, some sort of big... uh, gift, um, and it's not good. Homes are still relatively affordable as the nation continues to recover from the 2007 housing crash, but some markets, it's, you know, buying is cheaper than renting. Yeah. Seven of the ten least affordable markets are in California. Then you get, like, New York and Connecticut, Honolulu. 14% of homes are for sale are affordable for middle-class buyers. That's it. Let's take a break. Living in our utopia, known as the Bay Area. I'm Rob Black. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. I like talking about trends. I think there's a lot of easy money to be made if you can figure that out. One of the trends that, and again, trends are both positive and negative. Trends are simple. You know, trends are like baby boomers are retiring. They're going to consume more health care. Right? Pretty simple. And we've heard it's a record number of people retiring, 10,000 a day. And when you get older, you lose your health. You get glaucoma. You spend big money doing that. Now, again, Medicare, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, those programs kick in. There's a lot of visibility in healthcare. It's a trend. Another trend, uh, 
Baby boomers are different than Generation X. Generation X is different than Millennials. Millennials are different than Generation Z. And that's playing out that way. The Millennials are the most fascinating to me. You know, roughly 25 to 35. They were born at a bad time. They were born into, or they weren't born at a bad time. Their college years ended at a bad time. And that's not good. And I'll tell you why. Ultimately, what it comes down to is you have only age 20 to 60 to earn enough money, to set enough aside, to save enough for uh, retirement. Social Security is a supplemental program. It is not a retirement program. It helps supplement retirement. Now, how little can you save... I typically tell people you need a million dollars by the age of retirement because that will pay you $40,000 a year till the day you die, roughly. Depends on how you spend it. Depends on good years, bad years. Depends on emergency money. But how little can you invest and still retire? I'll go. I'll do the opposite of the million. And for me, my number is eight million. Somewhere between four and eight million is enough. A lot of variables go into a calculation of how little do you need. The bare minimum that you have to save in order to retire. So this is out there for the, the millennials. This is out there for everyone, but particularly the people in their 20s and 30s. The absolute minimum someone should invest a day to retire is $20.55. So every day you don't put $20.55 into a retirement fund, you're falling further and further behind. This is for the person who makes national average of $50,000 a year in income. That amount requires aggressive leaps of faith and assumptions. It's not science. It's more of an art. Saving and investing this little requires increasing the amount invested by the rate of inflation each year. So with 3% inflation, you need to save and invest roughly $21.17 instead of $20.55. So that's already starting to change a little bit. And that's going to replace 75% of your income in retirement. So that $50,000 of income that you're making now, it'll get you about 42000 roughly. So don't think that $20.55 a day will cut it if you start investing when you're 40. I'm talking about when you're 20-ish. The rule of thumb is you have to invest 15% of your income it only holds when you start young, preferably in your 20s, and invest in a broad portfolio of stocks and bonds. Again, I don't think the average person needs bonds, but I throw it out there. I think you need you know, income equity. It could be a real estate investment trust that's publicly traded. I don't like privately traded REITs. I find the people that sell the privately traded REITs, they're not disclosing how much money they're getting in commissions. And they rarely work out the way they were promised to. So, back to that trend of it only takes $21. But the sad part is, is millennials, who we're talking about here, they look at stocks as an incredibly risky proposition. And the funny thing is, they're not. Market on a regular basis hits all-time highs. So, looking at this, It's the mental scars that they saw their parents go through. Because, again, I know a millennial. 
that her dad was the most worst possible investor of all time. Her dad owned the house that they lived in, and then she de- he decides he's going to you know take some equity out and buy another one. And he does it one more time. So now he has his house and two rental properties. And the real estate recession hits, and he bought his homes, his investment homes, in areas that were more affordable, but were also farther away from jobs. And this is a generalization, but I tend to think that people who live closer to work probably have more going on than people who are like, i got to drive you know, two hours a day to get to work. There's a guy in radio that I know that drives like an hour and a half a day to work. That's crazy. That housing market is so far away, it's so affordable, but so few people would be willing to do that. So it creates a a real estate risk, in my opinion. So the father lost uh, his tenants and basically got foreclosed on one, which led to a foreclosure on the second, which led to a foreclosure on his house. He was so upside down on it, he basically, you know, short-sold it, got out. The moral of the story, um, leverage cuts both ways, and it's cruel. And if you find yourself in the situation where you're trying to buy real estate on the cheap, i.e., it's more affordable, um, it's not a good situation. You know, I recently saw the numbers on San Francisco. It's like affordable to 14% of middle income. It's a pretty good chance that when there's a real estate correction, it's not going to hit quite as hard because it's not people who are stretching to make their payments, who are struggling. When people are buying in all cash, let the recession come. They don't care. So let's see. Investing in equities has dropped across the board. And, again, all you got to do is $21 a day. Investing in equities has dropped across the board for Generation X, baby boomers, and millennials. Millennials are born after 1980. They've continued to forsake the market, even as it rebounds, up 150% in five years, 180%. So just 27% of 18- to 29-year-olds report owning any shares of companies or mutual funds. That's down from 33% in 2008. That's a tragic number. That's just one in four. When it's so easy at this age to save so little, and they're forsaking it. I love the word forsake. It's kind of got some power to it. The aversion to stocks means the group is missing out as major indices you know, hit records, potentially imperiling their future financial security. And the millennials don't seem to care, which, wave your hands in the air and listen to EDM. That's my opinion on EDM. Uh, Americans are shunning investments such as real estate that work out over time. Instead of plunging into stocks, they can provide better returns over the long run. Young people are stashing savings in bank accounts. Um, I had a friend at Visa that had money come out of the 401k and was just going into cash. I was like, what are you doing? You're young, you're beautiful. That should be being invested every two weeks. You shouldn't think twice about that. It's so it's the perfect investment vehicle for someone who wants to go out and wave their hands in the air like they don't care to EDM. So 
these 20-somethings, early 30-somethings, these millennials are referred to as recession babies. Um, there was something called a depression baby, you know, back in the 1930s. That a depression baby was someone who avoided banks and investing. I know a lot of, like, grandparents who lost the farm, and they never invested again. Even though historically the market's up 7 out of 10 years, historically stocks beat bonds, historically bonds beat real estate, you just sometimes can't convince people to do the right thing. It's a scarring experience. So the oldest millennials, as they hit their college education, graduation in 2002, they witnessed a 78% plunge in the market in the NASDAQ, as tech stocks burst. Tech stocks aren't, aren't, tech stocks are not the market. And what do I mean by that? Tech stocks generally get a premium price. They tend to run in batches, even though there's only going to be one winner. You know, way, way, way back in this example of the tech crash in 2002, 2000 to 2002, at one point in time, there was Yahoo, there was InfoSeek, there was Excite. There was like six or seven search engines. And actually, they were called portals. I don't know if you remember this. You would go to that portal to start finding things on the Internet that you wanted. They all had a search engine kind of component. We only needed one or two of them. We didn't need nine, ten of them. So tech stocks are not what you want to look at when you're looking at market history and market numbers. Anyhow, I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. You can find me online at robblack.com. This is Haim. Well, I think it sounds enormously like um, the Eagles. Uh, you ha- kind of have to go with it on that one. Three sisters, how cool. Isn't that everyone's dream? I saw it with the Brady Bunch when they formed a band. And it's st- what stuck with us in our heads forever. So the PPI climbed six-tenths of a percent in April. The year-over-year increase of 2.1% represents the largest 12-month advance since March 2012. Bank of England inflation report calls for the first rate increase in the second quarter of 2015. Whoa! Whoa! So, I know you're saying, nerd. Financial nerd. Getting your jollies from 2015 second quarter call on... Uh, a tick up in interest rates. Fascinating. 
so why do I say that's fascinating? The 10-year Treasury bond, it, it, it's, it's telling us that the economy is weak. I think bonds are smarter than stocks. Stocks are like the women I dated when I was 16. Or maybe even the men women date when they're 16. Is that fair? It's crazy. Change their minds, moody. The stocks are very, very moody. One stock can come out and the whole market can react. But the 10-year treasury bond, smart money deals with bonds. Emotional money deals with stocks on a day-by-day basis. Over time, stocks work out really nicely when they're less emotion over time. So the 10-year treasury sits at 2.55%. One of my phrases that pays is as long as the 10-year treasury sits under 3.5-4%, you buy stocks. Period. It's been a long time since we were at 4%. Five years ago, the 10-year treasury was at 3.88. I believe that's the highest it's been in the last five years. When we had a market correction in 2007, 2008... 10-year treasury was over 4%. I tend to say you buy stocks when the 10-year treasury is under 4, 3.5%. There's that zone there. that it's You're like, why not say one solid number? Because it doesn't work like that. You tend to buy bonds when 10-year treasury is above 4, 5, 6%. So needlessly, I don't have a lot of bonds right now. With that said, let's go to a quick phone call. We've got Tom in Sunnyvale. How are you, Tom? Hey, doing well, Rob. Thanks for taking my call. What's up? So my mother, she's 62. Um, she has a pension plan uh, that will kick in in about three years. So I'll give her uh, $320 a month. And they recently offered her a buyout um, to give her $36,000 immediately. Or they can also give her an immediate annuity of $200. Um, so... She wants the lump sum just to have the money in her pocket because she never knows what's going to happen. Um, she's relatively healthy, but she still wants to just have that, you know, comfort. And I told her, you know, it depends on how much you really need to survive on this, which is better. But I think she has probably about uh, nine to ten years left of her own savings that she can rely on, which she's probably dipping out at about three to four hundred dollars a month. Um, the rest of it she can survive on her uh, Social Security. Oh, where's your mother live? She lives in a suburb of Chicago. Okay. And you said she's 62. How much does she have in her uh, nest egg? She has probably 35, uh, actually about $45,000 left um, in her nest egg, not including this lump sum. Why did, yeah, that, that includes lump sum? So she only has like $9,000? Uh, no, that does not include that one. Okay. Offer. Um, she needs to continue to working, in my opinion, unless she could live off really a small budget. Yeah, yeah, we uh, definitely, she get, she got hurt, and so she had a hard time finding income um, for a while, and so she got on disability, um, and the yeah. disability will convert to Social Security soon here, but, um, so she legally can't work, but she does need more money. I definitely agree with you there. Um, she has a fixed um, housing situation where she has a uh, a modular home, so the lot rent is very minimal, uh, like $400 a month. So 
So that keeps her expenses low. Yeah, it keeps her expenses low, but she doesn't really have that much to draw from. Um, Correct. I'm going to say this with respect. You know, hopefully she doesn't live to 85, 90, because her assets are going to be gone. Um, Or she's going to be living with one of her children, or she's going to be living in extreme poverty. Um, I would say if you can convince her to try not to take Social Security until 70, uh, the longer she waits, the more she gets. That doesn't sound like it's a financial reality, but if anyone can make that happen, try to. You know, sure. if that's even a situation where the kids lend her some money, so, you know, in a contract, you've got two brothers, they're poor, they don't have money, you do. Maybe you can help her with her living expenses, but you get that money back kind of thing. Um, she's, not, she's not in a good situation. That's not enough money. She is one emergency away from... If she, like, for instance, if she goes into bad health care, you know, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, or Medicare, um, she's in Chicago, you still have a lot of expenses tied towards that. You still have deductibles. You still have co-pays. Um, it's pricey to be in poor health. So I would do whatever you can to either get her to delay Social Security or to continue to work as long as possible. Um, obviously, you're right. If she does live to 90, 90 taking the 200 uh, annuity is better than taking the lump sum. Um, there's no right answer. And in her case, I tried to say it as respectfully as I could. She needs to work as long as she can or, or delay Social Security as long as she can. Because um, that's going to be the financial difference maker. I'm Rob Black. Some of those that work forces Draw the seat that burns crosses 77600 for a free consultation That's Welcome in, Rob Black and your money Talking all things financial money, invested in more I want to kick off this hour talking about some investment ideas Some trends Specifically, I want to talk about athletic wear. I grew up with Nike in my face. I didn't even know Nike was in my face, but they were. Work with me on this one, right? So, Nike, obviously a shoe company. There's been moments in time where they get some competition or you know, America turns on them. Maybe Adidas or Pumas. They come and go. Fleet of Footwear, Nike name for the Greek goddess of victory. It's the world's number one shoe and apparel company. And their products aren't cheap. Being number one and adding that phrase, and their products aren't cheap, is a lot like Apple is number one company in gadgets, and their products aren't cheap. Now, Apple's not really the number one in gadgets, but they still have that perception that they are, right? So I'm comparing Nike to Apple. Nike designs, they develop, they sell a variety of products and services to help in playing basketball and soccer, a.k.a. football, as well as in running, men's and women's training, other action sports, swimming. Swimming. A company known for shoes, also known for the swimming suits. Nike also markets sports-inspired products for children in various competitive and recreational activities, golf, tennis, walking. Nike sells 
well, I didn't even need to tell you. Some of their products, you know, $200 to $300. Nike sells mainly through 800 of their own retail stores worldwide, e-commerce site, and thousands of retail outlets. Hmm, who else has that own retail store angle? Seems to me that would be Apple, right? So there's also a company out there called Under Armour. Now, I like Nike. You've heard me say I've liked Nike for 15 years. With that said, why are you talking about Under Armour? Under Armour's no slouch. And they're doing quite well. Now, their top competitors would probably be Nike, right? Columbia Sportswear and Adidas. Under Armour, if you look at people under 35, they're wearing two brands. They tend not to like the big company, Nike. They tend to go with Lululemon and or Under Armour. And both Under Armour and Lululemon, a little bit more design savvy. Now, since it's foray in the sports apparel market, Under Armour you know, does performance athletic undies, clothing has risen to the top of their industry pack as well. So they've gained a foothold in footwear. They're the official footwear supplier to the NFL and Major League Baseball. They're partners of the NBA. And they, I would say they specialize in sports-specific garments. It dresses its consumers from head, which is cold gear, to toe. Products are made of moisture wicking and heat dispersing fabrics, trying to keep athletes dry during workouts. So Under Armour sells its wares online by catalog through some factory house stores and in more than 25,000 retail stores. Back to Nike real quick. Nike's so popular, people camp overnight when new shoes come out at their stores. Who else does that sound like? That's right, Apple, right? I don't know if Apple's still going to... Is Apple still going to do that? Like, with their next phone, will kids still be going... And stretching for it. Now, Nike, back to Nike, they invest in future products. For instance, the World Cup. They start developing a lot of product two years before it, so that when it comes, they're they're there. The last athletic apparel company I want to talk about is a small one. It's Lululemon. They sell yoga-inspired apparel. It operates some 250 company-owned stores, primarily located in North America. Some are in Australia and New Zealand. It specializes in making women's clothing for yoga, dance, running. The company also offers some men's apparel. Uh, Taiwanese vendors make the clothing, which is distributed from facilities in Canada, the U.S., and Australia. So that's it. Those are the players, in my opinion. As an investor, I think you kind of want to be considering one, two, or all three of them. Because all three of them are very, very different. Under Armour's firing on all cylinders. It's growing at robust rates. It's beating analyst expectations. It's constantly raising guidance. Take a look at a chart of Nike. Take a look at a chart of Lululemon. Take a look at a chart of Under Armour. And what the chart will tell you is the most volatile one is Lululemon the smaller one, but it also has the most upside. So, where do we go from here? I think if I were to, you know, continue to pound this, you'd start thinking, like, he favors one or the other. I don't. 
that's how you become a winner on Wall Street is you don't fall in love. Do I think Nike will be in business the day I die? I do. Do I think Lululemon will probably be acquired down the road? I do. If you go back to 2007, Lululemon was a $15 stock. That's been as high as 80. It's now around 15, 50. So 2007 to 2014, do the math. That's an amazing return. An amazing return. Up well over 200%. Thank you. Better than the market. Now, again, it's more volatile. Switch that now to Under Armour. And take a look at the chart of Under Armour in the last five years. And, you know, you could do more if you want. But Under Armour back in 2009 was a $5 stock. Today it's a $50 stock. Now, that's a pretty good return, right? Under Armour's starting to get bigger, though. Nike, on the other hand, you know, Nike's just a colossal giant. I don't see one five-year period going back to 1980 where it didn't move higher. Every five-year period it did. Every five-year period. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Out of the last 35 years, Nike's moved higher seven times in five-year blocks. Now, is it expensive now? Yeah, but remember I told you that they invest in products for the future? So which one is my favorite? It doesn't really matter. I kind of like them all. This isn't uh, a choice that you have to, like, make. It's not a Sophie's choice. Who do you love most? Which one do I think has the most upside from here? Probably Lululemon. Which one do I think still has some good growth in it? Well, you know that one. Under Armour. Which one has some growth? A little less growth, but a little more income? Nike. So... When you look at the numbers on Under Armour, they're projected to grow revenue 25%. Income 25%. Way above market norms. And that's one of the reasons why you're not going to get it cheap. You're going to have to pay a premium to buy it, but you're going to give it time. Nike trades at 25 times earnings. You compare that to Under Armour, who's trading at 60 times. Whoa. Whoa. But it's trading at 40 times next year's. You don't go all in in these stocks. You accumulate them over time because what you've seen is they work over time. I'm Rob Black. Rob Black and your money. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial. Money invested into more. Talking money, talking investing, talking, you know, quality life is what I'm all about. I vacation really well. I shop pretty bargain-oriented. I eat as well as I can. I've become more and more conscious about it as I've grown older. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to blame my parents, but I kind of grew up in the Coca-Cola generation, right? Where... A quarter got you a can of Coke. And I'm not saying I was addicted, but probably something along those lines. Tea is one of the healthiest things you could do financially. You know, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition found drinking tea regularly improves your attention, self-reported alertness. 
Um, gives you better cognitive function in the elderly. Tea, green tea, is thought to have neuroprotective effects, which include L-thinanine, caffeine, and catechins. So the most powerful data out there dictates that green and black tea should definitely be in your shopping trolley. Absolutely. So put the kettle on. Drink up some tea. Financially, it'll help you. Um, another thing that you should be eating as much as you can is, is oats. Oats are whole grain cereal, usually eaten for breakfast as porridge. They have more soluble fiber than any other grain, so it could reduce the absorption of cholesterol. If every American started eating oats daily, um, it would cut down heart disease by 4%, just like that. So highly recommend eating better. Salmon, if you can afford it. Fruits, vegetables. These are all things that will get you a little further in health. You might remember I took a call recently from someone whose mother didn't save enough for retirement. One of the best things she could do was obviously work as long as she can, delay Social Security as long as she can, but also make sure that she's healthy. Because you could live in a trailer. There's no doubt about it on the cheap in retirement. But, and this is the pretty big but, but when your health goes, you got to pay for it. And it ain't free. A lot of people have this weird assumption that Medicare is free. It's not. You could expect to spend $15,000 a year in health care costs. In a bad year, in a good year, maybe 5000 in retirement. So those are some of the things that I'll throw out there. I throw out a lot of odd advice here and there. Like, for instance, <laughs> I think a master, uh, Bachelor of Science is better than a Bachelor of Arts. Now, that's not completely true. There's some Bachelor of Arts degrees, like graphic design, that have a strong need and are worth the money that you put into it, a return on investment. I'm not talking about the young 25-year-old girl who's got a poetry degree that got a job at Google. I'm not talking about her. She's the exception. She's not the rule. So one thing you could do if you don't have a, a college degree, I, I believe in college degrees. It To me it shows, and I don't care what you got a college degree in, to me it shows that you can get up and do your job. That someone could tell you, you need to get this done, and you basically got it done four years in a row. One job that's pretty high as far as pay that doesn't require a degree is communication equipment mechanic. A lot of trade schools and junior colleges offer vocational programs designed to teach skills tied towards communications equipment. You don't need any post-secondary degree. So I'd consider that. That pays starting right around 55000 Boeing gives a statistic out on a regular basis that says, uh, you know, air flights... More and more airplanes are going up in the sky, more and more. So you're going to hear more and more stories about crazy turbulence. Because statistically, there's more birds in the air. So what are we going to need? What job doesn't require a college degree that you can, you know, get, you know, an accredited aviation maintenance technician? I've got a friend who's listening to the show right now who... He's basically making glorified minimum wage, and he's getting maybe 20 hours. And he should say, you know what? I'm going to somehow figure out how to go and get what Rob just said, an accredited aviation maintenance technician school. 
That's right. We're going to need aircraft mechanics. Strong demand. And that starts at roughly $60,000 a year. Old people, as people get older, they can't breathe. So we're going to have more and more respiratory therapists. Now, you've got to be certified by the National Board for Respiratory Care. But, again, taking advantage of the boomers, that trend. So, again, respiratory therapist. Another job that doesn't require a college degree, police officer. Um, you got to go through a police academy. But that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Aspiring police officers must pass rigorous physical fitness tests, take extensive training, graduate from a police academy, and you start roughly at $60,000 a year. An electrical technician. A lot of post-secondary schools will give you an associate's degree. You're going to have to learn circuitry. But you can learn it. Uh, Nurse. You know, if I had a, if your child comes up to you and says, uh, I want to become a nurse, great. All those baby boomers are going to need people taking their, their, their stats until kiosks come in, which could happen. You know, my dentist, anytime I go to him, he puts a little thumb thing on me. And that does my blood pressure. It's awesome that he does that because I don't do my blood pressure regularly, so he's looking out for my health. Held and Lau, uh, Dr. Zachary Held, great dentist, young, aggressive, smart, savvy. Um, but a nurse starts roughly at sixty-five, seventy thousand uh, dollars You have to get state-issued licensing, and you've got to pass the National Council Light Licensure Examination. So be proud of that. I think that's a great career. Um and another one, with all the birds going up in the sky, all the planes, what are we going to need? We're going to need pilots. Even though we have autopilots, planes can fly themselves. High school diploma or equivalent, that's all you need. Commercial pilot license from the FAA. Uh, airline pilots typically need a college degree in addition to their FAA pilot's license. Um, but that's airline pilots, but not a commercial pilot. So why fly aircraft reasons such as charter flights, rescue operations, firefighting, aerial photography? So you can start that career with flying lessons in high school, right? Little fits and tantrums. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. You can find me online at robblack.com, Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. Take a break here. I'll talk soon. lucky enough to speak with Dr. Jeff Rosen on a weekly basis. He's the chief economist at briefing.com. Now it's time for Dr. Jeff. How are you, Dr. Jeff? Pretty good. How about yourself? 
I'm good. Is calling you Dr. Jeff too akin to calling, making you like a Dr. Phil? Does it bother you? <laughs> uh, it doesn't bother me. I, I, I yeah, I, I've had a lot worse. I've had a lot different. <laughs> there you go. So let's talk a little bit about an economist. I do a show about retirement, getting people enough of a nest egg so that they could live from 60 to 100 comfortably. To do that, you got to play in the stock market with mutual funds, 401ks, those kind of things. Why do we need an economist to play into the stock market? What's your role tied towards briefing.com and the financial advice that they see out there? Well, if we disregard what we've seen over the last couple of years regarding how uh, the Fed stimulus has affected the stock market, I mean, overall, you would expect uh, earnings growth to mirror overall economic growth. So as the economy improves, you would expect earnings to improve, which would boost stock prices. And there's a little bit of a disconnect over the last few years because, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank has purchased, you know, trillions of dollars in, um, in treasury bonds, and that has put a discontinuum on, on the prices of treasury bonds versus what uh, they may actually be worth given where the economy is. So if we and then that also has you know boosted equity prices because it's moved people out of treasuries and into equities. But overall, in you know historical norms, suggest that the stock market should follow uh, economic growth. One of the maxims I say on the show, I've been saying it for 20 years, and it's kind of worked. When the 10-year treasury is under 4%, you buy stocks. When the 10-year treasury is above 4%, you consider bonds and less stocks. Is there truth to that, or am I hurting people by oversimplifying? No, because, I mean, if you think about the way the treasury market works, I mean, it's an expectation of, of you know, short-term rates aggregated over the 10-year time period. So when, it's, when the treasury bonds are low, it's generally signifying that people believe that funds are going to decline, which, you know, it gives you lower rate of return on treasuries. So... And in that respect, if you're willing to risk what the economy can do, you know, in terms of performance. So if they, you know, obviously if the Fed has to lower rates, it's probably due to a uh, economic um, problem, either a potential recession in the future or uh, inflation uh, problems or whatnot. But uh, if you discount the risks and you, and you look long term, it's probably a decent bet. What are some of your favorite statistics? What are the, some of the statistics or the data releases that the average home user should pay attention to, knowing that they can't pay attention to them all? Uh, the most important is probably the unemployment rate and the unemployment numbers. Uh, it gives you an idea of how things are. And people normally consider the unemployment rate as a coincident indicator or even a lagging indicator. Um, however, if you look at spending, it really kind of follows closely in hand. So uh, if you see good employment numbers, you're going to probably see good spending numbers. And if you see good spending numbers, you're going to see, you know, stronger earnings numbers from uh, from companies. So it it's all follows hand in hand. It's something to look at. Uh, industrial production is big for GDP just because the service sector tends to be a very – stable, steady growth. So our ups and downs generally come from the manufacturing sector. So if you look at industrial production, you'll get an idea if you're seeing a, uh, you know, a sharp move up or down and how that can translate to overall economic growth. Um, 
Those two are probably the biggest indicators that I focus on. Uh, a lot of people look at inflation numbers, but the inflation trends have been uh, relatively meek. Uh, you may want to look at you know, commentary from the Fed, like uh, when they release their FOMC minutes and see how they're they're focusing on what they're what they're looking at and see if that jives with how the actual econo- the actual economy is performing and stuff like that. With that said, you brought up the word inflation. Inflation in radio terms to make things friendly for people, I say it's the boogeyman. It's the thing that could sap your future dollar purchasing power. What's your perspective on inflations? Because there's all type. There's wage inflation. There's home price inflation. There's, you know, dollar inflation or disinflation. Talk a little inflation that people should pay attention to. I mean, it all depends on uh, where you are, I would say, in your life period, in your life cycle. If you are young, you know, looking at wage inflation is important because you're going to be taking on debt and you're going to want to make sure your debt is able to be paid off based on uh, future earnings growth. So if you know your wages are going to increase, let's say, by 2.5% a year, uh, you'll know if you'll be able to pay off whatever the debt load is, you know, over time. If you are, you know, a retiree, you want to look at how, you know, your immediate costs work. So looking at price inflation uh, in terms of goods and services and specifically, um, you know, staples that you're going to be focusing on, you know, for the rest of your life, uh, food, that type of thing. You, you, you may want to, you know, focus more on that. Uh, dollar inflation in terms of uh, asset prices or in terms of against foreign currencies, I, I don't pay too much attention to. It all tends to uh, to even out over time or, or just get passed through in a, in a normal, easy way. Uh, acid bubbles in themselves are a problem. I don't know if you want to classify them as inflation, but uh, understanding where you know home prices are going up relative to rents Maybe a good idea before you start, uh, you know, disinvesting out of your home and, and spending out of your savings that you've built up in your house uh, is probably a good idea. The first quarter, and I'm speaking to Dr. Jeff Rose and ChiefEconomistBriefing.com. Wonderful website, a lot of independent live market analysis, U.S. international. There's so much there that could take up your day, so I highly endorse. Speaking with Dr. Jeff Rose, and recent first quarter data showed that housing. of houses were bought with cash in the United States. Um, Another study came out that said housing is continuing to fall in affordability for the average worker in the United States. Um, How does this end? You know, I I don't have a good answer for it. Right now, you you, you can only have two things that could happen. You could either have wage growth, and that'll, you know, allow people to buy homes, which seems rather uh, hopeful considering how the economy has performed and we've had sluggish wave, you know, wage growth since uh, the recession ended, or you have a price decline. And you know, the way I see it right now is that prices are increased too fast since the bottom and you're pricing out too many people and it's not going to be sustainable unless prices come back down. Now, I don't expect it to crash back to the to the lows that we saw, but you know, it definitely can look at how you know, the housing market has performed over the last year and those gains may be a mirage. You know, we may go back to uh prices we saw in in 2012 or or even, you know, 2011. 
internationally speaking, economically, who are some of the countries that are better off? Who are some of the countries that are worse off? Do you have that kind of data? <laughs> I, I think it's all relative and in perspective. Um, you know, you're seeing some growth out of Europe, uh, finally. You're seeing some growth out of the U.K., finally. But, you know, in order to get that growth, you know, you beat your head against the wall for several years, cutting uh, government spending and in putting in austerity measures. So you're bound to get growth just because, you know, you, you've cut so much and, and there's only way, one way to go up. I don't know if that's necessarily a good place to be, but if you came in, you know, now as opposed to living there, you know, for the last 15 years, it's not bad. Uh, you know, the average Chinese uh, uh, citizen is doing better now than he's done in the past. You know, China's growing. Uh, but, you know, generally across the globe, most, most countries are growing. You know, if I was going to say one place to be worse off is Japan, where things just haven't moved in 30 years. And, you know, even it, it doesn't look like it's going to start moving anytime soon. And if you take into the fact that uh, their debt situation is extraordinary and eventually, you know, the citizens are, are aging and are going to die off, leaving a very small amount of population to uh, maintain that debt load. You know, they're going to have a default at some point, or they're going to have to somehow spark immigration or population reform. I would probably stay away from there. <laughs> Perfect. Great answer. Tough question. Um, I just I threw it out there because I think a lot of people have these biases, like, oh, China's you know super fast growing. It's obviously going to overtake the United States. I kind of put money there, but there are some problems to be had with you know. Uh, all scenarios. But China should overtake the United States. I mean, if you look at it as, you know, labor times production is equal to output, you know, if you have a huge labor force, you should produce more. I mean, it's just simple as that. The question is, are they going to have a larger per capita GDP? You know, is their productivity going to outperform the U.S., which would increase their standard of living and should make China to be a better place to live is for the average citizen over the United States, and that's going to take much longer. Thanks very much. That's Dr. Jeff Rosen, Chief Economist with Briefing.com, filling our heads with economic nuggets that we could chew on for years to come. I always appreciate his perspective, especially since these questions aren't exactly scripted. With that said, you can find him and others like Patrick O'Hare, Chief Market Analyst at Briefing.com. You can find them at Briefing.com. Also follow them at Twitter. It's briefing.com. They don't put the dot in it because it kind of messes things up. Uh, good website, good content, uh, always straight into the point. We'll take a break. Be right back. So this song by the Chili's was the song that they used to bring me in at the top of the hour when I had a national radio show. I decided to quit the national radio show, not because of the song, but I've heard so many times, it's like the back in black, ACDC, 
try to imagine you with the theme song that you have to hear two, three times a day. You'd go mad. But what would your song be? That's a good question, huh? You want to call the show? We have our 800 number back. It's up and running. 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220. Throw anything you want at me. I try to do my very best to give you a wide range of topics that are out there. You know, whether it be the trend of sporting apparel and how we love it as a nation, but also our taste change ever so slightly. Um, I'll throw that into a story. You know, anytime Apple has a new product coming out, I'll throw that into the story because that's tied towards what Wall Street is. It's product-driven. Look at every single company you can think of out there. You know, Yahoo. What's their product? Pandora, Panera. Panera got a lot of credit for the way the fast food industry is changing. People want to go and linger. They want to have a cup of coffee for a long time. So Panera set it up so that not only did you get delicious things, like you can get a free loaf of bread every month for being a Panera customer. A lot of people don't know that. But it's a $200 billion fast food industry. And where McDonald's had like that plastic feel inside their stores, Panera went a different direction. More expensive, for sure. Now, you're also seeing companies like Starbucks figure out, wow, how can we make the customer happy? And Starbucks has got some pretty cool initiatives out there, um, including drive-thru. People like me, I really don't like going in stores and waiting. Now, they're going to have to figure out, how do you make the drive-thru fast? Because that's the, the nut that the fast food industry has to continually crack. So Panera, for their part, they introduced uh, kiosks, online and mobile ordering, that cut the number of cash registers at most of the stores. The changeover is going to take all the way into 2016. But it's a smart concept. They're trying to figure it out. Starbucks does an amazing amount of business now through their app to the point that other retailers and fast food companies are asking Starbucks, can we license your technology? For Starbucks to keep the app the focus, they could you know, now send you, hey, you haven't been in a store in a while, here's 50% off. The amount of data that they're getting is stunning. They know when you go to stores. They can change the, the way they staff their stores based on all the data that's coming through. It used to be that you have this cash at the end of the day. Yeah, it had some financial data points in it. But usually there's more bottom line than anything else. So the smartness of fast food companies is increasing. And you don't even know it, probably. It's that kind of passive. I recently saw household debt rose by $129 million quarter over quarter. Um, and a big jump in that was mortgage debt. A little bit smaller rise in student debt, car debt. Total household indebtedness, $11.6 trillion, which is way above the peak that we hit in 2008. So we are a nation of borrowers. And that's a good thing when interest rates are low. It's a bad thing when interest rates are higher. So I'm a little bit more forgiving. Now, I take this as my investor manifesto, 
I go, if we're going to borrow money, I'm going to invest in what people are borrowing money to get. It makes sense. People are like, oh, the stock market's going to crash. Stock market's going to crash. Stock market's not going to crash. We borrow too much money. Now, could it crash in the short term? Yes. Is it going to go bust in your lifetime forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? No. We borrow too much money. I make some blanket statements like that. I've got full faith in the American consumer to spend their paycheck. And on top of that, to even borrow more money than their paycheck can provide. I'm okay with certain types of debt. Mortgage debt's wonderful. I'm not so good with credit card debt because I don't think that's sustainable for the long term. With that said, banks aren't stupid. They decide they know how many people they're going to gouge. Not gouge. I've got to be careful on how I say that. They know how many people um, they know how many people are going to fail, and they know how many people are going to succeed, and they, they account for losses. You're listening to me, Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. If you want to get in on the conversation, please do. Macy's is one of those, like, I've not been a big fan of department stores. I'm just not. I don't like going to stores anymore. I don't like going to malls. And I'm a consumer. I'm a guy who's spending a lot of money on clothes. I'd rather, again, buy online and be done with it. With that out there, you know, we've seen companies like Sears, Kmart, uh, all basically collapse. It's almost as if it's the Highlander of department stores. You know, Walmart succeeded because of low cost. Kmart failed because of just bad product management. Sears failed and is fa- or is, is failing. J.C. Penney's they brought in a CEO to revamp things to be more 21st century, but the customers who shop at department stores aren't 21st century. I'm Rob Black. You can find me online at robblack.com, Twitter Rob Black Show, YouTube Rob Black Show. opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.